0: be seated this morning middle schoolers are dismissed at this time so they'll be up in the youth room and the rest of us we're going to continue in our journey in luke's for 21 months we went through luke's gospel so in the book of hebrews so if you'll turn to the the new testament book of hebrews the back of your bible you have the pastoral epistles of first and second timothy titus then you have philemon and then hebrews and james so chapter two it's so where we're going to begin at verse 1, Hebrews chapter 2. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Jesse's got a Bible in his hand, and then there's some on the back on the front platform for you, those of you towards the front. But Hebrews chapter 2, if you'll turn there this morning. As we look at chapter 2, the very first word that we read in chapter 2 is therefore. And, of course, as you read the New Testament in particular... That whenever you see that word used by the New Testament writers, that there's an emphasis that is there. Perhaps you've heard the saying that whenever you read the word therefore, stop and see what it's there for. And the reason that we do that is because what is being done here is the writer, uh, as it is the case here. We don't know exactly who the writer is in the book of Hebrews, the human instrument that, that wrote the book of Hebrews whether it was Paul, which most scholarship believe it was Paul, or perhaps it was Barnabas or maybe Apollos, we know that the ultimate author of this book and all the books of the Bible is the Holy Spirit because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed. But what the writer is doing in this case is connecting the previous thought to what is now going to be emphasized. Therefore, because of the previous thought, and then chapter 1, as we covered already, That the author of Hebrews uh, is is, was telling us that the word has spoken. And and that is Jesus, uh, God's Son. And then there were seven descriptions given to point to the Son, Jesus, as being superior, as being divine, as being uh, sovereign. He is number one, the creator of all things. He's appointed heir of all things. He's the brightness of the glory of God. Number four, he's the express image of God. He's appointed heir of all things. He upholds all things. He has purged our sins. Number seven, he sits at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus is superior to any person, any prophet, any religious system, any angel. And that was stressed, of course, as we finished chapter one last time. Remember, that this book was written to the believing jews there in the first century who were tempted to go back and put their trust in the old covenant and in the rituals and in the animal sacrifices in, in the priests or the religious leaders uh, all those things and the theme of the of hebrews is this that jesus is superior to all of that and the jews of course as they placed a high value on angels and We finish chapter 1 by being told to us that Jesus is much superior to the angels. The angels worship Jesus. They were created by Jesus, who's the creator of all. And the Father speaking to the Son, verse 8, your throne, O God, and then verse 9, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. So if somebody comes knocking on your door or comes riding up on a bicycle to you, And they say, well, Jesus, we believe is the Son of God, but they begin to diminish his divinity and that he is God that came in human flesh, that you can point them to these verses here, that the Father is calling the Son God. And as we go through this, we're going to see that that's going to be reiterated in this book, the book of Hebrews. So now, therefore, because of this, Jesus is superior. Realize he is our salvation. If the Father spoke through the Son, he is the truth, he is the word, then take heed to Jesus as we read in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Hebrews. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. So because the Son is supreme, he is superior, he has spoken, then take earnest heed or pay careful attention to. That's what it actually means. It it actually means in the Greek, literally, to be anchored in place, anchored in the truth. You're to be anchored in the one who is superior, who is supreme, who is sovereign in the word that is him, lest you begin to drift away. And and many of us, we know uh, a good example of that is, for any of you that like to go fishing on a lake, put a little fishing boat out there or you you go out there in in a little pontoon and and you're there fishing and even if the waters are fairly calm over time you're going to begin to drift if you're not anchored you begin to drift towards the shore you begin to drift away from the spot that you are in and that has the idea here and what we are being told just as they were being told at that time is that we need to be anchored in the truth of god's word We need to be anchored in the truth of the gospel so we don't drift away into deception and into doubt and confusion and to that which cannot save us. And I don't think that this epistle is telling these Hebrew Christians there in the first century that they don't know about Jesus and salvation in the gospel. They were not anchored in it. That's what they are being warned about. Don't drift away. Be anchored that Jesus is sovereign, is superior, that that as we continue, therefore, as he connects the thoughts together, that he's the captain of our salvation, as we're going to read later on in the chapter. And don't be drifting because you're going to drift into that which cannot and will not save you. It is my opinion, and I know that my opinion doesn't, mean anything ultimately but i'm going to give it anyway that i think that today in the church with so many christians that christians are not anchored in the word of god they're anchored in entertainment they're anchored in hype and motivational speakers that that tell them how wonderful they are and you are wonderful but they're not anchored in the truth People aren't anchored in the gospel, in Jesus, and there's a whole lot of drifting that has taken place. Therefore, since Jesus is superior, he purged our sins, sits at the right hand of the Father, as we ended the chapter, will defeat his enemies, take earnest heed, lest you drift away, as we continue in verse 2 of chapter 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him verse 4 God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will now the reader of this letter to the Hebrews when the writer mentions the word being brought by um, the angels as we're going to see here but we also know that uh, because the Son is superior, um, He has spoken. Take earnest heed. Pay careful attention to is what you are to do. And when the angels brought forth the word from God, it proved to be steadfast. The angels brought word in Genesis that Sodom and Gomorrah was going to be destroyed, and they were. We know that Gabriel, the angel, when he brought messages and announcements concerning the coming of the Messiah, that those prophecies Proved to be true, weren't they? And so here is, we see this that uh, we know that the reader here would think back to the, the Mosaic law, the Old Covenant being brought by the message of angels. In Acts chapter 7, verse 53, for those of you who jot down notes and for a reference, you might recall that Stephen, who was the first deacon, he, he was arrested, taken before the religious council called the Sanhedrin. And he is telling them as he's given his testimony in defense about the history of their fathers. And he speaks of their fathers Receiving the law by direction of angels. It would be Paul the Apostle in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. He would write, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed, that is Jesus, should come to whom the promise was made and was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, Moses. Uh, makes a very interesting point, and he hints that angels brought the law to him. So if the word they brought, those angels proved to be steadfast, the Mosaic law, we know that it was strict, the covenant that God made with the children of Israel, it was strict, and it was true. And we see that as they came to the mountain of God, God made a covenant with his people that if you believe in me and you follow after me, then good things are going to happen. You're going to be blessed, uh, it's going to be well with your children. I'm going to protect you from your enemies. And, and, and that proved to be true. But also, he would say, if you go after false gods and you do not keep my commandments, then it's not going to be well with you. And famine and droughts going to come, and you're going to be defeated by your enemies, and you're going to be taken off into captivity. And we know that in the history of the children of Israel, so you read those historical books, that that's indeed what took place. Even Isaiah's, we're reading on Wednesday nights going through it that Isaiah is calling the children of Israel to come back and to, to fear God and take heed to his word and remember the covenant that God made with them. But they were going after idols and eventually they would go off into captivity. And the point that Hebrews is making to us in these verses is this since Jesus is superior and supreme, how much more we are to take. The word given by Jesus. If angels' words prove to be steadfast, how much more Jesus, who is the word, that we are to take heed. The author of Hebrews moving from the lesser to the greater, from angels to Jesus, from the law to the wonderful gospel of grace that was brought to us by Jesus. And the law came to bring us a knowledge of sin. You see, as Paul writes in the book of Galatians, the law was not to to declare us righteous. The law declares us guilty. The purpose of the law was to show us that we cannot keep the law and to be a schoolmaster to point us to Jesus Christ. And since Jesus is superior, how we know that he's the one, that we move to him, believe in him, as we come to the knowledge of salvation. Don't neglect that. Don't neglect so great a salvation. I like that. That that Jesus brought the truth, the message, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He would declare in John chapter 8 as we read that if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And it would be brought to those apostles. And then the gospel would begin to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth as they brought that message of hope and salvation that comes through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now these Hebrew believers that were coming out of Judaism, they needed to understand that they were coming out of the religiousness, uh, that, that which could not save them, into true relationship with God that comes through Jesus Christ. And it was authenticated, the writer here says in verse 4, by God with miracles and signs and wonders. By the working of the Holy Spirit, that is what we see so clearly in the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit still working today through believers and in the church today. But I want us to to really take note in verse 4 here, because I think it's important that the working of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit is according to His will. Miracles, the gifts of the Spirit, cannot be worked up, it cannot be hyped Uh, try to duplicate that work by our fleshly efforts. It is God working in the person of the Holy Spirit in the believer according to His will in gifting the believers and working in the church to edify the body of Christ, to edify one another, and that includes miracles and wonders. And the reason that I mention that is because sometimes you'll see uh, that, oh, if if I'm going to receive that anointing, Or that gifting, I have to go to that person or go to that church to receive it, have hands laid on me. No, no. It is all given by the Holy Spirit. He's the one that gifts us. And he gifts us according to his will. He's the one that works wonders and miracles. In verse 5, for he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection (coughs) to angels. It's interesting, when we were at Qumran in Israel last year, by the Dead Sea, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. There was, uh, from Jerusalem, there was sectarians that moved, uh, made a little place where they lived there near uh, the Dead Sea, and they would copy the scriptures, and they would make commentaries on the scripture, and then they put them in jars, and they hid them there in the hills of Judea, and you see these caves that are all up there in the hills, where that's where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when they were examining some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was found that uh, they believed that there would be a time that Michael the Archangel and his fellow angels would come and rule the world. Well, nowhere in the Bible does it say that. And the writer of Hebrews <coughs> dismisses that. God never gave the angels dominion over the earth. Now we do know, as we read the book of Genesis in chapter two, that man was told to have dominion over the earth. and and we know that we are going to rule and reign with Christ in his coming, and we also know that Paul, as he writes a very interesting thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, that he says to us that, don't you know that you're going to judge the angels? And that's interesting because he's given indication to us that in the millennium reign of Jesus Christ that we'll be judging the angels. I don't think it's judging to where you're a good angel and you're a bad angel, that kind of way. But as we rule and reign under the rule of Christ, who's going to rule the nations, establish His kingdom, And remember that that is told to us in the scriptures as Jesus gave that parable of the mina and the talents in the gospels, that when we give an account of what has been given to us and being good stewards uh, of what we have been entrusted with, that Jesus said that we're going to rule over 10 cities and five cities and well done good and faithful servant for you've been faithful over a few things and now I'm going to make you ruler over many. And that angels are going to be ministering spirits. And Paul gives the hint that they're going to, you know, we're going to be able to dispatch them or use them and however it is that we're going to rule and reign. We don't understand it all, but it's interesting. But the angels didn't have dominion over the earth. Let's continue on. But one testified in verse 6 in a certain place, saying, What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands, and you put all things in subjection under his feet. When the writer here says, but one testified in a certain place there in verse 6, the, the initial reader would know that it was David. Quoting Psalm 8, we know that it's a wonderful psalm. What if, when I consider the heavens, David would write, and the work of your finger, and the moon and the stars which you ordained, and what is man that you are mindful of him. And I used to like to tell that to my kids when we'd be out camping, and I'm sure that perhaps uh, maybe you did the same thing. When you looked up at the stars on a clear night and you see the Milky Way galaxy, you're up in the mountains, and it's so clear, and you look at it, and it's it's like, wow, Lord. And and your creation, uh, how indeed, is Psalm 19, David wrote again in another place, they declare your glory, O Lord. And we think about how vast the universe is, and we can't comprehend it. And then I begin to think, that I'm just this little speck, you know, in all creation. But I love what the writer here says, that we are, even though we're made a little lower than the angels, we have been made as man, uh, but we are the crowning jewel of his creation. And I want you to remember that. If you ever feel like God doesn't care about me, I'm just one of six billion people or how many billion people are on the earth and all his creation out there is so vast and stuff, you are important to the Lord. And you are the crowning jewel of his creation. And he loves you. And he loved you so much that he came and died for you specifically individually. And what is being pointed out here now is Jesus' humanity, his incarnation. So man who was made a little lower than the angel was told to have dominion over the fish of the sea and birds of the air and cattle and creeping things of the earth. And and then something happened. You know what that was, that Adam sinned. And Satan became the god, the little g of this age, the prince of the power of the air. And all of us descendants of Adam, we were born with that sin nature, right? And Romans chapter 5 makes that very clear. Matter of fact, I remember... Uh, telling somebody, not uh, it was years ago, um, that were unbelievers, and and they were close to Sue and I, but, but we were trying to just share with them the gospel, and 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 share with them that we're born sinners, and we need the Savior Jesus Christ who came to die for our sins, and they actually were taken back by that because they just had a little baby, and, and they said are you saying that our little baby who's so perfect and beautiful and innocent that they have a sin nature and it's kind of like, you're going to find that out real soon. <laughs> you know? <laughs> when that beautiful, innocent little baby is going to start growing and he's going to have a tantrum or he's going to tell a lie or hit his sibling or whatever it is. We're all born with a sin nature and that's why Jesus came. And as Paul would declare in Romans chapter 5, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. Listen, folks, that's an important part of the gospel. There's a reason why Jesus came, because we're all sinners and we're all lost, and the wages of sin is death. And what is being said in the church more is we're not going to talk about sin, we're not even going to talk about the cross. You can't give the gospel without mentioning sin, and there's a reason why Jesus came and went to the cross to die for our sins. So we want to make that clear. We want to, to as gently and with love express that to others, and, and that's the truth of what, what God's Word declares. There's a sin problem, but now the solution is we continue here in verse 8 again, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. In verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. So as we follow the flow of what is being declared here so far in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, it has emphasized the deity of Jesus, his superiority over the angels, supported brilliantly by using scripture. Chapter 2, therefore, The author of Hebrews now demonstrating the humanity of Jesus. And don't think that Jesus was 50% God and he was 50% man. Or that, that he was God on the inside and man on the outside, as I've heard some teach. He was fully man and he is fully God. And man was to have dominion over the earth, but he forfeited that by sinning. We can't say that all things are subject to man under his feet, but we see Jesus, and I have that underlined there in verse 9. God who became a man in the person of Jesus Christ came to this world, tasted death for all of us, conquered death, and will rule and reign when he comes again, when he ushers in his kingdom, and the world once again will be subject to him, and we're going to rule and reign with him, as I've already mentioned. And that's why Romans chapter 5 is so important in understanding the gospel message that therefore, as through one man's offense, that is Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. The wages of sin is death, Romans chapter 3. Even through one man's righteous act, that is the last Adam, Jesus Christ, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And by one man's obedience, that is Jesus, many are made to be righteous. Jesus became man to be a sacrifice for us. He was divine, supreme, and so he's the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. Even as, again, Romans declares, he is the just and the justifier. But I want us to draw attention again, to verse 9 before we leave it, but we see Jesus. And I think that's what the writer here is really wanting us to understand and to emphasize to us. You see, what can happen to them, as it was happening, can happen to us today. For some reason, what we can do is we get our eyes off of Jesus and we begin to put them on someone else or on something else. We begin to put them on rituals, Or some kind of work. Or we put our trust in a church. Some people put their trust in a religious person. At this time, they were doing that. They were putting their trust in the rituals and in the law. They were putting their trust in the sacrifice of animals. They would look to the prophets that they esteemed highly. They would look to the religious leaders at this time that they saw as being so righteous. And that's what they were putting their trust in. And the same thing very subtly can happen to you and to me that we begin to put our trust in I go to church or I'm on the membership roles of the church or I got baptized or I took a communion or I did this ritual or we begin to put our trust in the faith of our parents you know, that are Christians or we begin to esteem you know, a pastor or teacher very highly. Listen, none of those things and no one else is going to save you. You get people that will follow some spiritual leader and and put them on a pedestal, and that's what truly they're they're putting their trust in. And they will not save you. And that church will not save you. And we need to remember verse 9 here, but we see Jesus. And as Christians, we have the glorious privilege of putting our eyes on Jesus. And the one who did not fall, tasted death for us, and he saves us, and that is the exaltation that they needed to hear, and we need to hear today. Because if you exalt a church, you exalt a religious ritual, you exalt you know, a, a spiritual leader, a pastor, evangelist, whoever it might be, that or they cannot save you. No one else can save you. They can't save themselves from their own fallen condition, much less save you. But we see Jesus is the emphasis here for it is fitting in verse 10 for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren And saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you in verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. When I think about the cross, uh, what he went through to bring many sons to glory, verse 10. I think about how Jesus, sovereign, divine, the creator of all things. For whom are all things, verse 10, and by whom are all things. Just reiterating what was already declared to us in chapter 1, that all things belong to Him, and He's the creator of all things. He made it all, and He would leave the glory of heaven. That place is so glorious and wonderful, we can't even comprehend it in our finite minds. That which is perfect, and He would leave that place where the angelic, creatures would worship him the seraphim the the cherubims the four living creatures that we read about in the scriptures worshiping at the throne of god day and night and not resting he left that and came to this world as a man as a bond servant was obedient to death to death on the cross despised by his brethren it can't be emphasized enough what he did for you and for me is absolutely incredible And that's why the author of Hebrews keeps bringing this point out. Know and understand this, who he is and what he did for you and for me. And no religious system or ritual or person can compare to that. Jesus was more than just a religious genius or a martyr for a good cause. He came to be the captain of our salvation, perfect through suffering. Now, does that mean that he was imperfect before he went through the sufferings of the cross? No, that's not what's being said. The one who is perfect and was perfect went to the cross, and through his sufferings, he makes our salvation perfect. Jesus, the captain of our salvation, the word captain means to uh, be the author. We will see that term used again, that title in chapter 12, captain, author, originator, leader, the captain is one who initiates and carries through. Jesus, the creator, comes as a man, was obedient to death on the cross. He is the captain. He is the one that originated our salvation. He consummated it. He finished it. He cried from the cross. It is finished, and no one else and nothing else did that or could do that. He tasted death for every man. Perfect through sufferings, which means complete. The work that he did on the cross is complete. And then he rose from the grave. The work that he did on Calvary's cross for our forgiveness and validating it with the resurrection. You see all other religious leaders are still in the tomb. Confucius, Muhammad, Buddha, whoever it might be. But there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And the work that he did for you and for me to bring salvation is perfect. It is complete. Do we understand that, Calvary Chapel? And Jesus, who is superior and divine, exalted, verse 11, is not ashamed to identify with us. And that's amazing. He is, verse 11, not ashamed to call them brethren. He completed our salvation, the captain of our salvation, so that we can be a part of the family of God So the question that I ask myself, and you might ask it too, is there any time or in any way that maybe you're hesitant? Maybe you hem and haw. Maybe you're ashamed to call him Lord. When we really make it our own and who he is and what he did for us, how can we be ashamed to do that? I mean, he saved us. He's forgiven us. He did the work. How can we be ashamed to call him Lord? He's not ashamed to call us his brethren. I I think there are some days that, Lord, you should be ashamed of me and my attitudes and what I did and my failings and my shortcomings. And then in verses 12 and 13, that here, again, quoting from the Old Testament, Psalm 22, that psalm that speaks of Jesus' suffering on the cross, he, he calls them brethren regards us as his children. Verse 13, he quotes actually from Isaiah chapter 8. In other words, the captain of our salvation tells us to trust in him for salvation. And we went over Isaiah chapter 8 not long ago, and you remember that Isaiah, as he's speaking to God's people, to Israel, he's saying, turn back to the Lord, turn back to the truth of his word. Fear God, trust in his word, but they were turning to the idols and that which was false they were seeking the mediums and the wizards and and here Isaiah is saying should they seek the dead on behalf of the living it's amazing what people will put their trust in some kind of philosophy some kind of religious system you know some kind of, of you know whoever it might be and whatever it might be and it doesn't bring them salvation It's not truth. And Isaiah says, because you have forsaken the Lord in his word, that you're going to see trouble and darkness and gloom and anguish. You see, that's why we want to speak the truth in love and make it a clear message to others around us that don't know Jesus Christ, that he is the truth and the life and the way. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And to let them see the love of Jesus Christ and what he did in going to the cross while while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. But as we continue in verse 14, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid uh, two angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Jesus didn't die on behalf of the angels but for you and for me. He's our elder brother because he took on flesh and blood. He died and rose again. And we have victory over Satan and over death because he conquered sin and death. We are free and we're released from the bondage of fear. You and I that name the name of Jesus, we don't have to fear death. Those who do not have Jesus, they have a reason to fear death. And there are those who don't believe in the Lord that you can talk to them because I talk to people, a lot of people, that they fear death. Death is a very fearful thing for them. And you and I are being told because he's the captain of our salvation that we don't have to be in bondage to that fear of dying. It is the process in which we are going to be glorified in in the promise of Is going to be fulfilled that we're going to be with him and and we're going to have new heavenly bodies and be glorified. It's a glorious thing to know that when we pass from this life and all of us will die unless we're raptured, that we are going to go on into heaven and be with him and we don't have to fear death. And you might recall that as we were going over Luke and, and looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the very first message to those women When they came in, they discovered that the stone had been rolled away and Jesus wasn't in the tomb. The very first message given to them is, don't be afraid. He's not here, but he's risen. Come see the place where he laid. And we know that the very first message by the angel that was given to those shepherds out there in the field at the birth of Jesus was what? Don't be afraid. For born unto you in the city, David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And because Jesus came to this world and he's the solution to the sin problem and went to the cross and rose again, we don't have to be gripped with fear. But as we finish this morning, because of that, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that, he himself has suffered being tempted he is able to aid those who are tempted. Again, Philippians telling us that he made himself with no reputation, taken on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and, and coming in the likeness of men, made like his brethren, verse 17. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. Now, when you think back to the Old Testament, that the high priest, he would wear that, that breastplate, and it would have 12 stones on it, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and it symbolized that he would carry the people on his heart. And then he had the ephod with you know, the 12 stones on the shoulders that he carried the burdens of the people. He cared about them. And we know for our faithful and merciful high priest that we are on his heart, we are important to him, and we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And Jesus, being like us, taking on humanity he has walked where I have walked. He knows what it's like to have no money. He knows what it's like to go hungry. He knows what it's like to go through the hurts, to, to be betrayed. He knows about our trials. He knows about the temptations that are there. matter of fact, when we get... The Hebrews chapter 4 is going to be told to us that our high priest that sympathizes with our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He knows persecution. He knows sufferings. He knows loss and trials. And he is the merciful and faithful high priest. And one of the things that I have discovered in years of ministry, and you discover it as well as you get older, that as we go through the trials and the difficulties and the losses, God does the work to where we become more merciful and sympathetic and compassionate to others when we have walked where they are walking presently. How are we more effective in ministering to others and caring for others? Because we feel those same things that they have felt, not exactly the same. The Lord knows exactly what you're going through. But I know for me in my ministry that through the hurts and the pains or the disappointments that God has used it to where I can become a better pastor to shepherd people because i become more sympathetic and compassionate and merciful. I pray that continues to be worked in my life. But he's the one that is the perfect high priest, merciful, sympathetic. He is faithful. He's our propitiation for sin, as we are told. That is the satisfaction for sin. The full and satisfying payment for our sins is what it means. And He came to give us aid. And to free us from the fear of death and a sense of hopelessness. And He brings the comfort and the hope to us because He's the captain of our salvation and He is faithful to us. Listen, He promises He'll never leave you or forsake you. And if you're going through difficulties here today and hurts and pains or confusion or discouraged or down or a sense of hopelessness, there is hope in Jesus Christ. He is the merciful and faithful high priest. Cast your cares upon him and know that you're on his heart. So Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for Lord, this chapter that just speaks to us concerning the captain of our salvation. We thank you for the truth of the gospel given to us that Jesus came the solution to the sin problem, the righteous one through the cross and his resurrection has brought us hope and salvation. And so, Lord, we thank you. It's not found in anyone else or anything else. So, Father, I pray that this morning, whether those here in the sanctuary or the coffee shop I know is full, those who are listening on live stream or later on on the radio, that if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. That's declared as Paul wrote in Second Corinthians. And today is the day to give your life to Jesus Christ. He loves you. He came for you. He knew that He would create you, that you'd be in this place the last Sunday of 2018. And He loves you so much that He came and died for you, for your sins, for you specifically, individually. And he rose from the grave and the tomb is empty. And the Bible now says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. As you recognize your need to be forgiven. And to surrender all to him. Turn to him. He loves you. He wants to save you. He wants to give you a new beginning. A new heart. Will you give your life to Jesus? You can pray right where you are. Jesus, I come. And I admit that I am a sinner. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me, but also that you rose again from the grave. And that you're alive, speaking to my heart. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for forgiving me and making me a part of the family of God, calling me brethren. I thank you for this new beginning. And I want to walk with you and I want to know you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer this morning as we conclude here, and I want you to come up and Jim is up front, one of my elders. He wants to pray with you. We want to encourage you or tell me if, if you're listening on live stream or on the radio, give us a call during the week. We want to encourage you and bless you in any way that we can. Lord, I thank you for today and I pray you bless everyone here that we would see Jesus clearly. The merciful and faithful high priest that has come to give us aid. So strengthen those who feel weak. Provide for those who have need. Comfort those who are in distress. Give wisdom to those who are confused. You're everything that we need. And Lord, may we keep our eyes on you. Thank you for this morning. Pray you bless everyone here as we go our way now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. God is good, isn't he?